Hello, and welcome back to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is the second parenting package. And there isn't really a new theme for this episode, but the goal is to give some new insights and give more examples, even though the core themes are generally the same. But all the while, I also want to validate the extreme difficulty of parenting, as I am giving this information here. A little bit about me. I am 28 years old, in the prime of my health, and I study effective parenting for a living. And I get totally worn out by my two kids sometimes. They're ages two and five. At no point do I want the message to come across of, this is what you should be doing right now, and if not, then you're a failure. Because if so, then I'm a failure, and I am definitely not a failure. So neither are you. This information is to give us a map of where we're going, so at least we know the direction to place our baby steps. And we can definitely expect this to be a baby steps process, with lots of steps backwards between our forward steps. As you're listening, I also want you to pay attention to how these principles match up with your own childhood. Pay attention to the emotions that come up for you. You may run into some trauma that's ready for processing. So, the things that we're going to review today... Um, Starting on page five in the steps booklet, this talks about um, some self-care and boundaries things for uh, taking care of someone with mental illness, uh, but I'm going to talk about it in terms of parenting. The blog post, A Child's Work Ethic, which I just published, you might want to skip that if you already saw it on the blog. What Are You Yelling About? And Other Parenting Helps. And To the Parents of adopted, foster, or otherwise traumatized children. Though it is geared toward uh, parents in the foster system um, or who have adopted children, this really is highly applicable to everyone. So please stay tuned for that one. All right, here we are to start in the steps booklet on page five. So this would be a good time to discuss the importance of boundaries and self-awareness in your efforts to regulate your, help regulate your child's emotions. Virtually all people have brain parts as described previously in the book booklet. I talked about you know the upper brain, logical calm part, middle brain, which is fight or flight, and then the lower brain, which holds our freeze response. And we all have these parts, even you, a parent. All the knowledge you have about communication skills will do you no good when your stress has reached fight-or-flight levels, where you become more likely to do harm than good. To avoid reaching this state, you can work on your own emotional emotional responses in several ways. One is through mindfulness. This is the process of getting to know your thoughts, emotions, and body sensations associated with those emotions. Learning to recognize what happens in your various emotional states is inherently regulating. Just labeling it helps calm you down. It increases your compassion for others because you can get a greater sense of what they might be feeling. And it can help you make informed decisions about boundaries and modifications to your emotional responses, like things that you can do to change it or cope with it. Number two, boundaries. If this child that you're trying to help is triggering your fight, flight, or freeze response with their emotions or behaviors, you must help yourself feel safe first. 
as you are no use to them in a triggered emotional state. Boundaries consist of if-then statements, meaning if this happens, then this is what I will do. Effective boundaries involve taking protective actions to keep yourself safe. They are not expectations set for others, meaning not if this happens, this is what I will make slash expect you to do. With older children and adult children, the protective action may mean you leaving the room or the house and taking time to breathe. With small children, it may mean placing them in a safe timeout space where they can have their emotions without causing too much damage to property, people, or themselves. Ideally, you could stay in the room with the person you're helping to mitigate abandonment stress. But if you have the choice between making someone feel abandoned rather than attacked, I usually advise to choose the former, um, unless there is some particular abandonment trauma involved here. But attacking is only an appropriate boundary if you are in a war zone, which you don't want your home to be. If you cannot keep yourself safe without putting other people or property physically at risk, then this person's emotional responses may need to be contained by appropriate law enforcement or medical personnel. Another part of boundaries is recognizing the limits of your therapeutic skill. Certain kinds of anxiety like OCD or those with strong delusions such as in personality disorders or schizophrenia require more time, specific skills, and strong emotional regulation of the parent to go through all the steps of regulation. Uh, you normally can't just listen and validate to help these people. You may go around in circles for hours and make no progress and potentially make it worse um, if you don't know what you're looking for. Please, In the, these kinds of cases, please disengage as gracefully as you can from the conversation when you realize this is happening and ask for further help from a qualified clinician. Lastly, work on your individual stress. Take a look at the article, The Brain in the Bucket, um, also found in episode three of the podcast, to learn about sources of stress and how to treat them. You can increase your coping skills to reduce temporary stress, make changes to your environment, or work on your trauma, all of which can increase your capacity to interact therapeutically. The most direct route would be to use the emotions you feel while interacting with the person you're helping and tracking the old sources of the emotional response. Uh, you can read about or listen to about that in the podcast episode about trauma. Consider, are you taking responsibility for this person's feelings or actions? Is it your job to change them? Does a specific behavior or emotional state of theirs trigger strong emotions in you? Do you see part of yourself in this person? Do you believe in withholding judgment but find yourself judging this person? If so, you'll have some work to do on yourself that will improve your ability to be helpful to this person. All right. Next post is a child's work ethic. I was recently asked the question, how do I help my kids develop a strong work ethic? It seems somewhat straightforward, but sitting with this question showed me how complex it actually is. I did have some practical advice that addressed this parent's concern, but I had to point out the basic assumption of the question, that there is such a thing as a strong work ethic, or that kids learn to work hard. This assumption is not scientific, but moral in nature, and I cannot judge how moral or spiritual someone is, and um, most people I know don't believe in judging people like that. So for example, 
Does a surgeon who works 80 hours a week but neglects his wife and kids' emotional needs have a strong work ethic? Does a teenager who develops ulcers and migraines to keep perfect grades to avoid criticism from perfectionistic parents have a strong work ethic? Or does a depressed mom who used all of the energy she had just to get out of bed have a poor work ethic? My answer? I don't know, and I can't judge that. But what I can attempt to discern is why someone is adapting to their situation and how to change things to produce better outcomes. So, let's think about my five-year-old son. If I want him to clean his room, he will need a real reason to do so that he cares about. He doesn't care about the potential for losing things in a messy room. His five-year-old brain can't comprehend the future like that. He doesn't get any satisfaction from organizing. He prefers to have all his stuff out in the open where he can see it. And that makes sense for a five-year-old. He doesn't care about bad smells or germs. He's not a germaphobe like I am, and that's probably a good thing. And there's nothing inherently moral or righteous about having a clean room. And even if there was, children don't develop moral reasoning until later childhood, typically between seven to nine. So, maybe I could make him afraid of consequences for not cleaning his room, such as spanking, getting yelled at, or criticized or shamed, which might work for a while, but will traumatize him and give us other problems later on. So I don't want to do that. And there's really no behavior I need from him so urgently enough to give him an anxiety disorder, meaning there are no life-or-death situations, which are really the only reason we would need to shame, criticize, or enact violence on a child. So, what can I do? First, I need to determine why I want him to clean his room. Is it to appease my anxiety about having a messy house? Is it to appease my mother-in-law so she doesn't criticize me about my children having messy rooms? Or is it to teach him to be a, quote, hard worker, which we've established to be an ill-defined trait at best? I need to determine whether my motivation for him having a clean room is something actually worth imposing on my child. If it is due to my anxiety, then I don't want to impose that on my child. But maybe I determine that I want his room clean Because a hunt for clean clothes in his room is causing annoying delays in our day. Which is still related to my anxiety because, you know, it's due to me being nervous about keeping a tight schedule and feeling frustrated when I don't keep a tight schedule. But I don't want him to worry about that because that's still my emotion. Um, So I'm not going to try and convince him that, hey, you have to clean your room so we can keep a tight schedule. Uh, That's not an anxiety I want to inject. So I need to think about what he cares about. And he cares about Skittles and his TV time. So maybe I can offer him 10 Skittles for picking up his room and zero Skittles for not picking up his room. And he can choose between them without fear of rebuke. If he is in a low stress state, the Skittles will be appealing enough for him to want to do a quick cleanup of his room. If not, he's also allowed to say no and have no Skittles. Or I might offer him some extra TV time for cleaning up his room. Again, he can say no without fear of punishment. If extra TV time isn't important to him on a particular day, that's okay. He also has his regular hour of TV that he just gets, you know, no matter what, on a daily basis during the baby's nap. But that's also my me time. That's that's when I get to relax. So I need to be careful not to leverage that 
for chores or as a consequence for rule breaking if that's not something I'm actually willing or want to give up. Most of the time, I don't want to give that up, so I'm not going to use that as leverage. The principle here is simple. People will do what is relevant to their needs, and we have no right to judge them what to judge what we think their needs are, really. If we want children to work, we need to find something that motivates them, something they care about. If we try to impose our adult motivation or feelings, then we set our kids up for failure and mental illness. We can gauge motivation by looking at a couple things. One of them is a child's developmental level, such as thinking what's important to a 13-year-old and their emotional state using that three-part brain model we talked about before. Is the child in a calm, logical state? Are they up in the top of their brain? Kids in this state want to learn. They want to challenge themselves. They want to seek novelty. They want to develop morality and build relationships. They can easily do non-essential tasks, like get good grades, do extracurricular activities, do service projects, stuff like that. They don't need... Um, um, they don't need a whole lot of boundaries placed on them. What about fight or flight? Kids in this state are anxious. They're doing just enough to survive and feel okay, often using short-term coping skills. They care about passing, not getting straight A's, unless failure to get straight A's means getting criticized or nagged by parents. They can perform essential tasks, like going to school, and coping tasks, like playing video games or being with friends but have a lot of difficulty with non-essential tasks, like homework and cleaning their room, meaning these are tasks that don't have immediate heavy consequences. And let's think about freeze. Kids in this state are depressed. They have little access to the learning and logical parts of the brain, and they mostly just want to check out, sleep, or be alone. They cannot perform non-essential tasks, like doing homework or chores. Those things are just totally irrelevant to their emotional state and they have a lot of kids in the state have a lot of difficulty with essential tasks meaning they're going to skip school a lot or go late to school and they can pretty much only use their coping behaviors like video games phone usage or just do nothing so we need to think about those different brain states and the child's developmental level to determine what is motivating for them if we can determine that, then they will work hard at that motivation. If not, then they won't. So, a couple more examples. A calm, logical 12-year-old will, will gladly take $20 to go mow the lawn, but a 5-year-old who doesn't care about money and isn't strong enough is not going to do that, um, and a depressed 12-year-old who doesn't care about anything doesn't care about that $20 and is not going to mow the lawn. That is totally against, you know, basic survival needs. An anxious 14-year-old might do the bare minimum on homework in order to get their phone or video games not taken away, but a depressed 14-year-old doesn't care. That depressed 14-year-old will never do homework um, even if their phone or video games get taken away. Only threats against food, water, shelter, or bodily safety can effectively motivate a depressed child to do anything that isn't essential to their survival right now, because threatening basic needs makes anything essential, right? However, these kinds of threats shouldn't exist, again, except in life-or-death situations. 
um, unless we want our kids to develop personality disorders, which, you know, if you look at anyone with a personality disorder, it's because they developed anxiety about things that were not actually life or death situations, um, typically due to abuse. We also don't want to leverage our relationship with our kids to get them to do things. And we do this through aggression, through yelling, spanking, by um, threatening to restrict family outings, meaning that we will deny them family time if they don't do a certain thing, by guilt tripping, by telling them that they're lazy or ungrateful or unappreciative, um, or by criticizing them or ignoring kids, giving them the cold shoulder. Um, all of these things threaten a basic need for humans, which is a relationship with parents. Um, and if that is threatened, then strong anxiety is going to arise, and probably depression from that as well. If a child is not generally in a calm or logical state, we need to determine whether or not we want to focus on the consequences and the boundaries, or helping them actually come out of their fight, flight, or freeze state or a strategic combination of both. But we should be especially mindful if it is our methods that are actually perpetuating the emotional distress, such as by leveraging relationships. So for more on, for more details on these principles, um, such as boundaries engaging a child's emotional state, please review the steps booklet um, or episodes one and two of the podcast. As a footnote, some may be concerned that this approach might be coddling or perhaps not preparing kids for the real world. This feeling makes sense since many jobs, educational opportunities, or other adult scenarios include much more intense or rigid consequences for not doing things or, or doing things, and we want our kids to be able to handle those hard situations. But I would argue that having a safe home environment where your basic needs are provided for and relationships are not threatened, and mistakes are allowed to happen, will set kids up better for the real world. When we know we have a safe place to return to, it's easier to go out and take risks. When we learn from our parents that we don't deserve to be shamed, yelled at, or exploited, then we're more likely to stand up for ourselves in those toxic work environments and seek change rather than submit to abuse. We have more room to adapt to hard situations rather than be overwhelmed by them if we don't have trauma from home holding us back. So it is, the, it is the safety of the home environment that creates resilience, not, you know, a rough and tough traumatic home environment. All right, next post is called, What Are You Yelling About? And Other Parenting Helps. There are a few behaviors that we preach against directly in therapy, and yelling at people to elicit certain behaviors, to intimidate, or to discipline is one of them. Most of us don't believe in yelling at our spouses, co-workers, or friends. It's disrespectful, threatening, and socially unacceptable. But what about children? They're arguably the most vulnerable to shame, but they bear the brunt of the yelling in our society, mostly from their parents. Yelling can only be perceived as a threat by children. And... The people they should feel safest with, their parents, have the greatest capacity to do harm by yelling. When the closest, most influential people in your life use fear tactics, it is very hard to feel safe generally in society. So why do we yell at our kids? Besides the common explanation that we learned it from our parents, it's basically out of desperation. I hear a lot of things like, 
I repeat myself 10 times and they just don't listen if I don't yell or they don't get the message if I don't or I'm just too tired to argue so I have to take charge or even my kids yell at me so I have to yell to speak over them. And I completely understand these feelings. Don't worry, it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad parent. It just means you're overwhelmed and likely traumatized by your own parents. These responses all indicate last resort desperate efforts. But since there are virtually no behaviors worth shaming a child for, yelling should mostly be a non-resort. And it is actually possible to parent without yelling. It is also very difficult and takes some knowledge, energy, and time. We're not going to do this overnight or all at once. So first, here's some knowledge. Having defined rules and their consequences helps a ton. Try not to create rules or consequences on the spot if you can help it. After one or two conversations about the existence of the rules, let the rules do the talking, right? Like you don't need to argue if there's a boundary, a hard boundary in place. There's no need to remind about the rule or re-explain it. Just enforce it. Two, make sure you're enforcing the rules consistently, not allowing loopholes, negotiations, or exceptions, because your kids are going to find them if, there are, if they exist. Kids feel betrayed if they get away with something most of the time or only get consequences intermittently. If you can't be mostly consistent, consider if having the rule is actually serving your purposes. If the consequences have no effect then maybe they aren't addressing the underlying issue. Third, don't argue. Why are you engaging in a debate with your child? To convince them that you're right? You already know that this doesn't work, and you being right won't change your kids' feelings or behaviors. Kids will often express their sadness and anger about rule enforcement by trying to argue. Just validate the feelings, listen, validate, without engaging the content. The conversation won't last long, your emotions won't escalate, and the child won't feel threatened. You can just say things like, I'm sorry I've upset you, I understand how you feel this way. Um, but don't attempt any validating statements if you can't actually be sincere and gentle about it. Um, I want to give a quick example of this, because kids do this all the time. Like, maybe you've discussed how like they only get one hour of TV time, and then you go, turn off the TV for an hour, and they say, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And parents say like, well, it was, your hour is up. And your kid says, we never talked about that. Like, why is it just an hour? An hour is not enough. My friends get so much more time than that, or they don't even have rules. You don't need to engage in a debate about this. You don't need to argue about why an hour is the rule, or, you know, you don't need to compare yourselves to other families. Don't engage with the child's arguments. They're coming out of the emotional part of the brain and you know, trying to engage logically is just going to send us down a rabbit hole and we're all going to get upset. So you just say, I hear you. I'm sorry. And then you walk away because the rule is the rule and you don't need to argue about it. Last, outlaw not listening. Let your kids know that if you've warned them once, you know, or maybe twice, they get the consequence or the boundary. Don't use your precious energy repeating yourself and getting up to yelling. It's much more efficient to just take the screen away or you know, set whatever boundary it is and gently validate the feelings when your child gets upset. If it seems like they're not listening, you don't need to like try extra hard to make sure they heard what you said. The rule is still the rule, whether or not they 
act like they heard you. Second, taking care of your energy. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in that first um, part I reviewed. Um, but I just wanted to reiterate that using your parenting knowledge and being consistent requires that you have your wits about you and the strength to use your skills. There's some things you can do to increase your chances of success in using your parenting techniques. One, take care of yourself. Find time to relax and to de-stress. You know, have a list of your coping skills, things that can help you wind down. Don't interact with your kids if you're feeling emotionally flooded. Learn to recognize your emotions and what your bodily signs are that you are at risk of yelling. Try to leave the room or take a walk outside if you're feeling the anger rising and you're about to say something you're going to regret. Reduce your daily stress load. What can you cut out from work, school, or other responsibilities? What things are impeding you from parenting effectively and meeting your kids' needs for love and attention? Are these activities worth the cost on your kids and on you? Last, identify and process your triggers. How does your past trauma or experience inform your current emotions? Are there stuffed emotions or pains that are coming out on your kids? <sighs> Take a deep breath. You can do this. When you reduce your own yelling by taking care of yourself, your kids will reduce theirs, and overall stress levels in the house will decrease. You can feel safe in your own home. All right. Last post is to the parents of adopted, foster, or otherwise traumatized children. And again, this one applies to everyone because whether or not kids have macro traumas such as they experience in the, in the foster system um, or whether they're just experiencing strong emotions from other things, these principles are the same. So, whether or not you have chosen to have custody of a traumatized child you have an extremely formidable challenge ahead of you, one that not all parents face. There's no greater calling than parenting, and those who must parent traumatized children should be honored and supported. Thank you for your efforts. If a child is adopted or placed in the foster system, it is almost guaranteed that their brain wiring has adapted to face a world of danger. The birth mothers of these children were almost certainly under tremendous stress, increasing potential prenatal exposure to stress hormones. If the child lived in the home before being fostered, they were likely exposed to intense traumas. Remember that even children who witness alcoholic parents come home and scream at each other every night might not be placed in foster care because that's not technically illegal. The trauma must exceed legal bounds to include illegal drug use, substantial neglect, or physical or sexual violence, right? But there are many traumas that are totally legal and that kids don't get taken away for, right? Adopted or foster children have, for good reason, developed wiring in their brains to face threats. The same is true for children of divorce, who have often witnessed intense conflict between parents, which may continue after separation. They learn that close relationships are not safe. Whether the new environment is safe or not, children with survival wiring will unconsciously try to perpetuate the world their brain has experienced. They must keep their guard up and their teeth bared, and must be suspicious of people that present safe fronts. They have learned that primary caregivers will hurt them, so they provoke new caregivers, caregivers to anger in order to get over with it. Meaning, they're, it's like they're saying in their minds... Like, 
like, I know you're going to hurt me. I know that this is all a trick, so I'm going to get you to just hurt me so I don't have to you know, be afraid of what's going to happen. These traumatized children become experts at finding adults' insecurities and striking where it hurts the most in order to perpetuate their dangerous world and gain a sense of predictability. Because even if the world is dangerous, it feels a little bit safer if it's predictable danger. So, what does this mean about parenting a traumatized child? To the best of your ability, you're trying to act like a therapist. I went through two years of graduate school with specialized trauma training, but still often make mistakes, offend people, and rupture relationships in the therapy room. Nobody is going to be perfect at this, but there are always steps we can take to improve. These children have a much better chance at a functional life with you, and you can only give your best. Please be kind to yourself as you try to navigate the needs of a child whose operating manual is constantly changing. Hopefully, the following info can help. Consider what happens in therapy with these traumatized children. When they enter treatment and we start to build a relationship, they'll often lash out. They're trying to get me to fight back. Their fight or flight conditioned brain is just trying to justify itself to keep the world predictable, and it will go to extraordinary lengths to do so. Closeness, safety, and intimacy are foreign to such a brain and are seen as threats. The only way I can help these children is by bracing myself for their anger and preparing to validate while still setting hard boundaries if necessary. I can tolerate all feelings, but not all behaviors. Meaning that I can sit here and I can you know, listen to a child yell at me in the therapy room, um, but I won't let them destroy my property. I need to prove to the traumatized brain, um, I need to prove that it is wrong, that it is um, that it doesn't need to adapt that way by helping the child feel that I will never judge or hurt them, regardless of how much they fight or self-destruct. I know that if I stick this out, you know, if I wait out the storm, I will one day reach the pain and sadness underlying all the anger. And once I uncover the sadness, validate it, and help it release, the child's brain will learn that I am not a threat. So what does this look like at home? Here's a surprisingly common scenario. Your child has managed to get past the blocks on her phone has been sexting sketchy characters. You know she would only do this out of a desperate bid for validation and attention. Whether she can verbalize this feeling is not important. Your child is not inherently bad, but does have a fragile ego. You take the phone, as was previously agreed upon when the phone rules were broken. Your child might say, I hate you! You never let me have any freedom! Parent, I'm sorry I've hurt your feelings. No, you're not! Or you'd give me my phone back and mind your business! I'm sorry. I wish I could. You're the worst parent in the world! You never listen! You don't care about me! All you care about is controlling me and making sure I never have any friends! Goes on an extended rant about how you're fat and ugly and ignorant and your mom never loved you and I don't care about all the sacrifices you made for me and I wish I was never adopted. Parent, I'm sorry. The child runs to her room and slams the door. After an hour, she comes out and says, I'm sorry I yelled at you. Can I have my phone back? Parent, I'm sorry, but you may not. Child, why not? Parent, I hear you. This is tough. Child, she repeats everything that she said the first time, but with more hurtful and hateful looks, she runs back to her room and slams the door. So, this sequence may run through several more times, perhaps with different topics and over the course of several days, maybe. 
As your child's heart rate slows down, and as she re-enters her logical brain, she thinks about what happened and can find no evidence that you ever attacked her. Remember, all you did was just sit there and say, I'm sorry, I hear you, um, I understand, this is hard. You kept the boundary that she had agreed to. And you said nothing invalidating, hurtful, luxury, or judgmental. Like, you knew the rule, or, you know, we've been over this a thousand times, or you thought you could get away with this. Right? Those are the, those shaming statements that don't help. You were careful to give no logical explanations while the child was in the thick of their emotional brain. Remember, the logical statements clash very explosively with strong emotions. Your child comes down eventually and apologizes again for blowing up on you. She didn't mean what she said. You thank her for the apology, but you try not to add any extra guilt in this moment by trying to teach or telling how much it hurt you. Um, traumatized children are rarely in a place to hear you to hear about your feelings, um, and they should never be expected to validate your feelings. Um, <clears throat> so, if teaching does need to happen, though, it, it should happen at times when everybody's feeling calm and not vulnerable, meaning probably not in the moment or after, you know, the heated moment, but at a separate time altogether, you know, when the brain is most receptive. In the meantime, you take care of yourself by expressing your hurt feelings and frustrations to another validating adult, like a spouse or a therapist. If you have the energy, you might acknowledge that you understand how setting the boundary was painful and ask your child to express her feelings about what happened. When the child is calm, she'll be more likely to express the primary emotions, which is usually some form of sadness. And in this case, we might hear about a sense of loneliness, of feeling unimportant. Um, those are the kind of feelings that drive uh, risky sexual behaviors um, or relationship behaviors. It is most important that this feeling be expressed. This is the pain that that anger was covering up. So treating it, treating that pain, will produce less anger later on. Continued interactions like this in the long run will gradually prove to the traumatized brain that it is safe. There are boundaries in place but no threats of danger and no shaming or criticizing. Creating a sense of safety is a lifelong process. Even if your child begins to function as well as other less traumatized children, she will still count on you to provide unconditional love and safety. So, will you be able to follow the script as demonstrated here? No, certainly not every time. And people with no other stressors have a hard time not getting defensive while under ruthless attack. And you have many other stressors. Your child may be engaging in more destructive behaviors that require firmer boundaries that are harder to enforce. You may have a legitimate desire to be aggressive to your child, which is understandable. You're going to slip up and say something at the wrong time or say something shame-inducing. It's okay. Your best will have to be enough. <sighs> Take lots of time to breathe slowly. This is a lot of stuff. Parenting neurotypical children is hard. Parenting traumatized children can be hell. You are not alone in this. Please reach out for support. Your children may never be in a place to validate your feelings, but others can. Talk to your spouse, family members, friends, clergy, perhaps an individual therapist. There are many support groups and resources for those in your situation. And I just have a short list of books here um, about you know uh, working with 
foster or adopted children. There's one called The Connected Child, The Body Keeps the Score, Waking the Tiger, The Whole Brain Child, and other works by Dan Siegel, um, and the book Stop Walking on Eggshells. It's a book about borderline personality disorder, um, but great for working with kids, especially teenagers. So, that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed it, or learned something, or at least used it to successfully fall asleep. Again, if you have a topic or question that you'd like to see in a blog or podcast episode, send me a message. And thanks for listening.